Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Are you putting on the full armor of God? We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. and You and I, if we're going to be equipped to engage in that warfare successfully, we need to put on the full armor of God. We're studying about the full armor of God in our series, Survivor West Side. Today, uh, we are moving into an uh, additional piece of armor, but so far, uh, we've been looking at first the belt of commitment. Uh, have you put on that belt of commitment? Are you committed 110% to fight the war and to win the war? And then we talked about the vest of holy living. Breastplate of righteousness, Paul calls it. Uh, are you living a life that will enable you to engage successfully in the spiritual warfare? And then we saw the combat boots of the solid footing of knowing that you are at peace with God. That you're not at war with God, you're at war with Satan and his demons. That you and God are on the same side because you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and purchased and redeemed by His blood. And then last week we saw the door shield of faith and how important it is to put up that shield of faith. So when the enemy shoots his fiery darts, they will be extinguished as we lift up the shield of faith. Today, another vital piece of spiritual armor, the helmet of salvation. Take your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 10, and we'll read through verse 18. And our emphasis today will be in verse 17. In respect for the Word of God, let me ask you to stand. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing and most of all the obeying of His Word. The helmet of salvation, as we said, Paul, since we're talking about a warfare and he uses military terms, he takes a Roman soldier of his day and he takes the various armaments of the Roman soldier and he applies that to the Christian soldier in our battle against the forces of evil. And today we're looking at the helmet the Roman soldier's helmet. 
First, let's look at its construction. As you will see, it was either made of leather with metal plates fastened to the leather or of a solid cast metal. Now, what you see is a replica of a first century A.D. Roman soldier's helmet. Now, what was its function? Its main function was to protect the Roman soldier from what was called the broad sword. You remember the broadsword was that three or four foot long sword with a large handle that the one who was using it would grab it with two hands, much like a baseball bat, and they would seek to knock off the head, decapitate the enemy. It was a favorite of the cavalrymen who would be on their horses with their broadsword, and they would try to, again, crush the skull or decapitate the enemy with the broadsword. And so, as you can see from the construction of the helmet, its design was to deflect the blow of the broadsword and keep his head from being lifted off of his shoulders. As you can see, there's a flap in the back and on the sides so that if the uh, enemy was successful in bringing the swing of the broadsword, it would hopefully hit one of those metal panels and keep it from penetrating into the neck. Or if he came with the sword down straight, it again would hit the helmet and glance the blow off and not crush the skull of the Roman soldier. And so that was its construction and that was its purpose. Now Paul, talking about the Christian soldier's helmet of salvation, is talking about what? What does he mean, the helmet of salvation? Well, there are three possibilities that are before us. Now, you remember, salvation has three aspects. First, there is the past tense of salvation. We have been saved by the blood of Christ. There is a past tense to your salvation. At the moment you were born again, you experienced salvation. But that's in the past. But there's also a present state of salvation. We are being saved. This is what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He means the progression of our sanctification, the progression of our holiness, the progression of our Christ-likeness. So there is a very true sense in which we are presently moving into the fullness of our salvation. Now, you're going to heaven the moment you're born again. That's settled. Your sins are forgiven in the past. But in the present, you are growing into Christ's likeness. You are growing into experiencing the fullness of your salvation as you grow into spiritual maturity. So that's the present sense. But there's also a future sense of salvation. That involves the resurrection of our body. That involves heaven. There is a sense in which our salvation will not be complete until we are glorified after the very glory of Jesus Himself. And that's in the future. And so it's true to say, I've been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved in its fullness. So when Paul talks about the helmet of salvation, which one of these three aspects is he talking about? We must discern that if we're going to understand this helmet of salvation. I don't think he's talking about the past. 
He's not saying that you need to get saved when he says put on the helmet of salvation. He'd be a little late in the process. He would have said that first. He would have said that's the first thing you need to do in this spiritual warfare is you need to make sure you're saved. You need to put on salvation. So he's not talking about that. I don't even think he's talking about the present tense of salvation because he's already covered that in the breastplate of holy living in the firm foundation of knowing that we are at peace with God. That's the present state of salvation. Even the shield of faith, as we hold up that shield and believe what God says over what our physical senses might tell us, over what Satan might want to tell us. Again, that is the present aspect of salvation. So that leaves us the third aspect, the future aspect of salvation. And I believe that's what Paul is referring to when he mentions the helmet of salvation. I believe he's talking about the hope of our future salvation. Now, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there is evidence that this is what Paul had in mind. In Thessalonians, Paul was talking about, again, engaging in the spiritual battle. And notice he picks up on some of the same terminology that he uses in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 8. But since we are of the day, and he means children of light, Christians, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the hope of salvation. Now, let's talk about what that means, a hope of salvation. Well, first of all, when the Bible uses the term hope, it uses it differently than the way we use it in our modern English. Now, you and I use hope in the sense of a wish, something we would like to see happen, like I hope the Falcons get into the Super Bowl. That is purely wishful thinking. Right? But in the New Testament, when it uses the word hope, it means a confident expectation. There is every reason to believe that indeed it will take place. And so when Paul speaks about the hope of salvation, he is speaking about the confident expectation of the fullness of our salvation. Hope is always in the future. You don't hope for something that's in the past. You hope for something that's in the future. I have a confident expectation of my future salvation. The fullness of my salvation. It is that looking forward. It is that... Christians' confident expectation of future glory and blessings that God has in mind when He says, put on the helmet of salvation. We are only enjoying the first fruits of our salvation. The best is yet to come. And so when Paul speaks about the helmet of salvation, he's talking about the hope the confident expectation of all the great things God has in store for us in the future. Well, that's the construction of our helmet, the hope. Well, what's its function? I believe the primary function of this helmet of salvation is to protect the Christian 
from Satan's broadsword of doubt and discouragement. Satan loves to come to us when we're in the heat of the battle with discouragement and doubts. We get weary of the struggles. They seem fruitless and we get discouraged and we get depressed. We may even doubt if we're even saved at all. Satan comes up to us and says, and you've been reading your Bible and you've been seeking to live right. And what's happened? You've lost your job. Some blessing God's given you. Or you're seeking to be conformed to Christ and not to the world. And what do you get but ridicule from people? They think you're a nut. They think you're a religious fanatic. Well, when Satan comes to us and he takes that broadsword of doubt and discouragement, we got to make sure we have on the helmet of the hope of our future salvation. Why is it so important? Well, why do we get discouraged? Think about it. You get discouraged because you think things are hopeless. That's what makes discouragement take its root. Now, put yourself in this situation. Your school team is uh, in a football game. It's a half, and the score is 42 to nothing. You're getting beat. Now, how do you feel? You're discouraged. You've seen other teams score 42 points, and your team has not scored any. You've been embarrassed. You're discouraged because you don't see there's any hope. But then a friend of yours comes by, and you happen to know this friend is also good friends with the coach's son. And he comes by, and you say, man, what's going on? What's happening to us? We're getting beat 42 to nothing. You're all down in the mouth and discouraged, and he says, "Oh, oh, don't, don't, don't be concerned. I, I've talked to the coach's son, and he tells me that the coach has been playing the third string all day, and he knows that we are so much better than this team. He didn't want to run up the score so bad, so he ain't even been playing the second or first string. This has been the third string playing. He's going to put the first string in the second half, and we're going to blow him out of the water. Oh, now, how do you feel?" No longer you discourage, you're encouraged. Your spirits lift up. All right. There is hope. We're going to win. And you see, this is what Paul is saying. When Satan comes to us and he wants to discourage us and we look around us and it looks like it's 42 to nothing. He wants us to remember that the last chapter has not been completed yet. That we've read it and the truth is we're going to win. We may lose a battle here and there, but we're going to win the war. We've read the last chapter of the book, and we know how it ends. And Paul says, don't get discouraged. Think about what God's got in store for you out there in the fullness of your salvation. When we look at our present situation, we can get down. But when we have that confident expectation of future salvation and what all that means. And we're protected from that broadsword of doubt and discouragement. Now let's talk about what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. Because I want you to get a firm grasp of this future salvation that's awaiting you as a Christian 
that if you will get a firm grasp of this, let me tell you, no matter what you're going through in this life, you are not going to get discouraged. You're not going to get down because you know what's waiting ahead. First, let's talk about the greatness of our salvation. Then we'll talk about the guarantee of our salvation. And lastly, the glory of our salvation. First, the greatness of our salvation. When Paul wants to tell the church at Rome about the greatness of the salvation God has in store for us, he wants to draw a comparison. You know, when you want to see how great something is, sometimes the best way to do it is to draw a comparison between two things. All right? How great is Mount Everest? Well, compared to an anthill, you can see some comparison, can't you? All right. Anthill is not even worthy to be mentioned compared to Mount Everest. All right. This is what Paul says. Look over in Romans 8, beginning with verse 18. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is saying, Our future salvation is so great that the present sufferings are not even worthy to be mentioned when you compare them to our future salvation. So Paul has, in one hand, our present sufferings. In the other hand, he has our future salvation. He says our future salvation is so much greater and is so grand and glorious that when you think about what we're going through in our present sufferings, it's not even worthy to consider it. It's not even worthy to mention it. Now, if Paul's sufferings have not been much, then what he's saying doesn't mean much. Now, does it? If all the suffering Paul's ever gone through is a sore toe, and he says, well, you know, the greatness of heaven is not even, uh, my sore toe isn't even worthy to mention compared to the greatness of heaven. Well, that doesn't tell you a whole lot about the greatness of heaven. But now, if Paul has suffered a lot, and then he says, but, you know, even everything I've suffered, heaven is so much greater, it's not even worth mentioning, my suffering. Then it means something, doesn't it? Well, Paul talks about what he suffered over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it is amazing to me that any one man endured what Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. So when he's talking about this comparison, folks, he's got something to compare. Look at what he says. Beginning in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. How many of us have even been beaten once for the gospel? Offer in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That was with the cat of nine tails. Forty lashes was the death sentence. Jesus was lashed 39 times before his crucifixion. Paul was lashed five times with the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Stranded out in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, 
dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern of all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is laid into sin without my intense concern? Now Paul's words take on some meaning, don't they? He says, even though I've suffered all of this, it's not even worth mentioning. When you think about how great our salvation is. And so the greatness of our salvation can be seen in this comparison. When the devil swings that broadsword of discouragement on you, make sure you have on the helmet of the hope of your future salvation. And you think, you, I don't even have it as bad as Paul had it. Nowhere near as bad as Paul had it. And if he said his sufferings aren't even worth mentioning when you think about the greatness of salvation, how much more are my sufferings not worth mentioning or comparing? to the greatness of the salvation God has in store for me. Next, let's look at the guarantee of our salvation. It could be great, but if it's not guaranteed, we still might be in trouble, right? But if it's guaranteed, and you know for certain that salvation in the future is waiting on you, then you can get excited about it. If you know the victory is guaranteed, you can get excited. Now, Peter talks about this over in his first letter, beginning in verse 3 of the first chapter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what Peter does, he weaves for us a rope of the guarantee of our salvation. And this rope consists of five strands that Peter weaves together to make the rope of the guarantee of our salvation. And let's look at these five strands briefly. The first strand in the rope is that God is the one who has saved us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. That is, we did nothing to save ourselves. God saved you. You had no more to do with your spiritual birth than you did your physical birth. God saved you. You did nothing to save yourself. But what's good about that is, since I did nothing to save myself, I cannot do anything to lose my salvation. Since I didn't do anything to gain my salvation, I cannot do anything to lose my salvation. Since I didn't do anything to make myself born again, then I can't do anything to make myself unborn, so to speak. So that's a guarantee that my salvation is going to stay. Second strand in the rope, God saved us based on His mercy. As we see in that same verse 1, who according to His great mercy 
has caused us to be born again. God didn't cause you to be born again because he saw you as a great person who could really serve him in his kingdom. He caused you to be born again according to his mercy, according to his grace. You didn't deserve it, not one bit. I did not deserve my salvation. Did nothing to deserve it. Did nothing to earn it. Purely because of God's mercy on me. Well, you know what's great about that, don't you? If I didn't do anything to deserve my salvation, then I can't do anything to make God take it back. Because He knew everything I was going to ever do when He chose to save me. He knew every sin I'd ever commit. And He saved me anyway. And so since I didn't deserve it, I can't do anything to lose it or cause Him to take it back. So that's a guarantee. Third strand. Our salvation is a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There we have that word hope again, that confident expectation. As Jesus defeated death in his resurrection, so we shall defeat death and be resurrected someday. The same power that brought Jesus alive will bring us alive from the dead. He was simply the first fruits of our salvation. Because He was resurrected from the dead, we know that we shall be resurrected from the dead. Therefore, our salvation is guaranteed. The fourth strand of the salvation, our future salvation is absolutely secure. Look at what Paul says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. That means not decaying. Not able to be destroyed. It's used of the Word of God over in chapter 1, verse 24 of Peter. In other words, our future salvation is as indestructible as God's Word is. Next, he says it's undefiled, without defect, unstained. Our future salvation is flawless. It is perfect. It is pure. Next, he says not fade away. That means it won't dry up. It won't wither away. Our salvation is guaranteed, so there, in its entirety, in its fullness, and its completeness throughout eternity. And then he says it's reserved in heaven. That means to guard. It means to take care of. No burglars or thieves can rob you of your future salvation. It is kept safely and securely by God Himself. And then the fifth strand of the rope is we are protected by the power of God for a future salvation. Peter says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, it's God who's protecting us, who's keeping us saved. If it depended on you to keep yourself saved, if it depended on me, to keep myself saved, we would be in trouble, folks. But it does not depend on us. We are kept by the power of God. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. He's talking about that future salvation. God is going to see to it that you are kept saved and you will experience the fullness of your salvation. That's why Paul could write to the church in Corinth and say, Now, I'm confident about this one thing. 
that he who began a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Christ Jesus. He said, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God who began to work in you his salvation is going to continue to work in you that salvation until he brings it into its fullness. That's guaranteed. So your salvation is guaranteed. You can't do anything to change that. Not only is it great and guaranteed, but it's glorious. Now, our glorious salvation, I've broken up into two aspects. First, the glorious body that you're going to receive when you get resurrected. Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 42. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You see, when, when we die, our body stays here and our spirit goes to be with the Lord in heavenly places. If you're a Christian. Your body stays here. It either gets consumed with fire or it's placed in the tomb. If it stays there long enough, it's going to eventually turn back into dust. Well, when Jesus returns in His great glory and power, then that body that has been put in the grave is going to come forward. That's the resurrection. Now, Paul is talking about that body. And he talks about what it was like when it was put in the grave and what it's going to be like when it comes out. Here we go. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. Raised imperishable body. Now, when you and I are planted... We're perishable. We decay. We're decaying every day. Look in the mirror if you don't believe me. We are going downhill, folks, not uphill. And uh, we're going to continue to decay and deteriorate. And when we die, we're going to keep deteriorating. But I want you to know when that body comes out of that grave, resurrected, it's going to be an imperishable body. That means it will not decay. It will have no deterioration. There will be no injury. There will be no aging. There will be no sickness. There will be no pain. You'll be imperishable. Next, he says it's going to be glorious. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Now, this present body of ours, as much as we might want to think differently, is filled with dishonor. I mean, we got warts. we got moles. Uh, we got defects. Uh, you know, we got things that just aren't perfect, are they? It's kind of filled with dishonor. But let me tell you, when that body comes out of that grave, it's going to be changed. It's going to be glorious. There will be no deformities. There will be no abnormalities. We will be perfect in every way. We will have the very glory of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In fact, Jesus said, our glory is going to be so great that we're going to shine like the sun at noonday. That glory, as it shone through with Jesus when He was transfigured, we're going to shine like that. Moses' face shone when he was in the presence of God for 40 days. Our whole body is going to shine like the radiant sun. That's what we got waiting for us. Not only that, but it will be powerful. He goes on to say, It is sown in weakness, but raised in power. 
Now, we all know we're weak when we're in this life. Again, we have aches and pains. And, and, but when we're raised up, folks, that weakness is gone. We're going to be raised up in power. Now, we're not told what this involves, but it will be immeasurable power compared to our present weakness. You want to be strong? Just wait. It's coming. And then he says it will be spiritual. 44. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, our bodies that we put in the grave are physical bodies. And physical bodies, we're limited by time and space. You can only be one place at a time. But when your body is raised, it will be a spiritual body. Yet, it will have flesh and and bones like Jesus had in his resurrection. It's a corporeal body is what the theologians call it. But let me tell you, it won't be limited by time and space. You'll be able to travel across the world. It's greater than the speed of light. You won't be confined to space. You won't be confined to time. You'll be a spiritual body. You'll walk through walls like Jesus did when he was resurrected. Now that's the glorious body you've got waiting on you someday. But not only do we have a glorious body, but God has given us that glorious body because he's got a glorious place prepared for us called heaven. Somebody has defined heaven as God's greatest delights for his children. Over in Revelation chapter 21, we read something about heaven. John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any crying or mourning or pain, for the first things have passed away. And then again in chapter 22, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. And they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. The heaven is so great that we have nothing to compare it to in the positive light. And so He doesn't spend time trying to tell us how great it is by saying it's as great as so-and-so because it's so great we can't compare it to anything. So what He does is He talks about what's not there. He talks about the greatness by talking about What's not there? There won't be any pain in heaven. There'll be no heartache in heaven. There'll be no death in heaven. There'll be no crying in heaven. There'll be no mourning in heaven. See, all the things we hate about this life, guess what? They're not going to be in heaven. And that's just what won't be there. What will be there, the most important thing, is Jesus. I love it when it says, and his servants will see his face. As that song goes, oh, what a day that will be. We'll see him face to face. And that's what you've got waiting on you. That is a confident expectation that we have. Viktor Frankl was an Australian psychologist that survived the Nazi death camps. He did a study of those who survived and those who did not. And what he found was that even though he considered a person's 
vitality, a person's family structure, a person's health. He found a person's uh, uh, psychological makeup. He found out that these were not the main factors that made the difference between whether someone survived the death camps or did not survive. He found out the number one difference, the number one thing that enabled survivors to make it was their future vision. They had a hope for the future. They felt they had a mission yet to be accomplished. That something good awaited them in the future. Those that didn't have it gave up and died. Winston Churchill had this hope of the future salvation. He had an interesting way of, of depicting it in his funeral. He planned his funeral. And so when he died, his funeral service was in St. Paul's Cathedral. And he had planned for many of the great songs of the faith to be sung and a message to be brought. And at the end of the service, after the benediction, he had a bugler over in one of the sides of the big dome play taps. Simplifying and simplifying that the day was over. And that's not unusual, is it? But as soon as that bugler finished taps, a moment of silence, and then he had a bugle on the other side of the dome, hidden, who began to play Reveille. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. That was his way of saying, it's not over. A new day is dawning in eternity. No matter what you're going through in this life, remember, put on the hope of your future salvation. The better day is awaiting. The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that this life is not all there is. In fact, it's only like a vapor compared to the duration of eternity. And You have such great things planned for us in eternity that no matter what we go through in this life, we will not get discouraged and down and in despair when we look ahead to what awaits. As you say, well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity today to respond as the Holy Spirit has dealt with you. If you never come to a time in your life that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity today. That you'll just open up your heart to Him and say, Lord Jesus, I want you. I want you more than I want anything. I'm willing to turn away from anything in my life that's not pleasing to you. I want you as my Lord, my King. And I trust you as my Savior. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe God's been dealing with you and there have been some things in your life that you know are not pleasing to Him. And you just want to publicly say, I have, by God's grace, turned away from those. I have forsaken them. And I've come back to Christ. 
Maybe you need to just come and pray. We invite you to do that as well. Stand as we sing together and you step out in obedience to God.